Welcome to the Worldwide Bible Class, Pastor Wolfmuller, Life of Jacob with Martin Luther. Let's pray and get going. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we might embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you've given us on our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get after it here. Life of Jacob with Martin Luther. Uh, we are in, whoops, where'd we go? Chapter 28. There it is. So Genesis chapter 28, where um, where Isaac, so you'll remember the plot here. Uh, and let's, let's back up just slightly, just a tiny bit. So uh, number one, God promised the older would serve the younger. Number two, Isaac and Esau ignored that promise. Number three, Esau confirmed that promise when he sold the birthright to Jacob when he was coming in so hungry. But but number four, I, Esau and Isaac continued to ignore that. So number five, Rachel, together with Jacob, plotted to not only get uh, Isaac the, well, to get Isaac this, sorry, to get Jacob this blessing from Isaac, so the plot to cook the stew and to cover the hands with the fur. So that Isaac now gives the blessing to Jacob. And things are made right. Isaac receives the blessing that God intended him to have. And then Esau plots to destroy him. And not only is Esau going to kill Jacob, but he knows that that'll also kill, basically kill his dad. He's going to wreck him. So now Rebecca is planning to send Jacob away, but she does it in this kind of savvy way. Instead of going to Isaac and saying, send him away because Esau wants to kill him. She says, send him away so that he can go get married to, he can go get married to one of the daughters of Heth. Uh, he doesn't want to marry these. He, um, Rebecca doesn't want uh, Jacob to marry these Canaanite women. Like Esau had married a couple of the Canaanite women and were driving her crazy. So, uh, so, so instead of, and this is one of the things we talked about last week, instead of, instead of Rebecca saying to Isaac, send him away because Esau wants to kill him, says, send him away so he can go and get married to someone more comfortable for us. So, so this is what happens. So, um, let me get to the right spot. Whoa, wait, wait. Where, let me just uh, click that button. Okay, so here we are. So uh, Genesis chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Patamaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. So your maternal grandfather, go over there and take yourself a wife from there, from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So, cousin. Okay. It was still legal back in the day, I suppose. So, this is the this is the plot. Now, Luther's going to tell us uh, the first part of this chapter is not theological, for it does not relate to examples or spiritual doctrine concerning faith and other spiritual acts of worship, uh, like all the previous chapters do. Yet, the things dealt with here require and include both faith and the fear of God. In other words, you can't, 
I mean, you're not going to be able to, you can't read the Bible and disregard faith and the fear of God. So it all has to be understood in this context. But this is a section pertaining to morals. It deals with marriage. So Luther's given us a heads up and he's saying, uh, previously, you know, we were dealing with these things that have to do with confessing the faith and so forth. This is going to have to, this is an ethical section that we need to pay attention to. But that does not mean we should ignore it. Look at what, what he says here. That topic should be retained in the church and should be diligently urged because of the necessity and the dignity of marriage. So Luther says, we got to talk about marriage too. In fact, Luther says, well, I'll let him say it. For after the doctrine of the gospel and faith, which is the proper doctrine of the church. So the, the key doctrine that we need to pay attention to in the church is, that, is the gospel and faith. But then after that, what comes next? Marriage should be honored and respected above all. So first you talk about the gospel and faith, and then you talk about marriage. This should be done. Why? Because the world and the flesh do not understand what marriage is and how highly it should be esteemed. Okay. Now, this is this does not sound unfamiliar to us. We are in we are in the time in the world where marriage is being fought against, despised. There's great confusion, et cetera, et cetera. So this will be really helpful. But I want to set it up. I want to be careful about how uh, um, how to set this up in the context. So the two points of context to remember. Number one, could we remember that Luther was coming out of the Middle Ages? So our first point of context is the understanding of marriage in the church, uh, which which understood basically that there was the holy way of life, which was chastity. Uh, and this is why the monks and so forth would have their vows of chastity. That they, they basically understood marriage as an uncleanness. And intimacy in marriage was even like no different than fornication or adultery and so forth. That, this was a this was a, a really terrible understanding of marriage. And so if you wanted to be holy, you had to be unmarried. Uh, now that led to all sorts of unholiness. It, 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 it not only was it wrong, but it was dangerous because, and, and this is true for all false doctrine. Any, any false doctrine is going to be not only wrong, but dangerous. And so the attempt to be holy apart from marriage led to a lack, a, a complete lack of chastity and great, uh, well, let's Melanchthon at one point says, um, it's not even, it's not even, um, permissible to speak of the things that happened in the monasteries. It, it's just even to think of them is is um, they they were so wicked. So the the to 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 pursue holiness in unnatural chastity or in in required chastity led to all sorts of sexual immorality. Number two, I want you to remember that Luther is lecturing to seminarians, so um, he's training up men who are going to be pastors. And this, and this accounts for the fact that most of the advice that Luther is going to talk about here with marriage is to, um, uh, is to young men, 
it's it's good to just to keep that in the context. It's it's not like there's anything inappropriate, but it, Luther speaks much more of the bridegroom than he does of the bride because of the context that he's he's here lecturing uh, to seminarians, and he's lecturing to them in the context of these guys who were coming out of this medieval understanding, and now recognizing that pastors are also going to be fathers and husbands, and uh, they're going to have to have homes. And they're going to have to take care of children and so forth. This is a completely, um, this is a completely new idea that a pastor would also have a family to raise. I mean, that had been forgotten for, for how many years? For centuries, uh, you either had a family or you had a congregation, but you'd never had both. I remember uh, when I was talking to Father Angel about this. He was the Catholic priest who was, he was ordained a week before me in Colorado, right down the street. And uh, and he said, Brian, I don't know how you do it, having a family and having a congregation. It's like it would be like having two wives. And I said, uh, Angel, it's a much more like having 200 extra children. <laughs> but the idea of having those two things at the same time is 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 foreign. So that is baked into the uh, that's baked into the conversation here uh, with Luther. OK, so let's get after it. Uh, the the section that deals with marriage, a topic should be retained in the church and should be diligently urged because the necessity and dignity of marriage. Okay. For after the doctrine of the gospel of faith, this is to be respected above all. To be sure, men usually define it in the following way. So Luther is going to contrast the common definition of marriage with the with a true definition of marriage that he's going to offer us here. So here's the common thing. And I would I would ask you to reflect on this a little bit yourself. Is how do people now define marriage? In fact, you, you know there's some guys um Ryan Anderson and Sharif Girgis and um uh some of these other thinkers who Robert George have a nice book what is marriage and they're asking about these definitions. How do we define marriage? And they point out that the major definition that we have nowadays is um, uh, it's it's an emotional definition of marriage. That what do they? How do they call it? They call it the um, as opposed as opposed to the compatibility understanding of marriage. They call it the someone's going to remember and tell me in the chat. But the basically the idea is that that um that we understand marriage now as the most intense emotional um emotional bond that two people have with one another or this I, I i don't know why but something changed a couple of months ago or weeks ago that makes writing difficult it's an it's understood to be an emotional bond and if this is how we define marriage then how can you exclude for example two men and two women from that definition uh they they've come up with the understanding that no we don't have an emotional understanding of marriage we have a compatibility understanding of marriage a whole person understanding of marriage let's see how luther does with comparing it so normally marriage is defined luther says uh the union or Uh, or companionship 
of man and woman, it maintains inseparable companionship for life. So he says that's how normally people talk about it. Now, what's interesting to us is we look at that and we say, well, that's actually not that bad. I mean, for example, it, it includes man and woman, <laughs> which we've lost now. We've lost the idea that it's a man and a woman. Uh, we've, we've lost the idea that it's inseparable with divorce and with especially no-fault divorce, uh, that it endures for life, etc., so that that so we look at this definition and we're like, well, it's better than the common definition that we have today. But Luther's going to say that this is missing a number of things. But this is not the whole definition. For the final cause and the efficient cause are lacking. It is taken only from the material cause for the union of man and woman is material. Now, what does Luther what in the world is Luther talking about here with the final cause, the efficient cause, and the material cause? This goes back to Aristotle. And and I wanna um I wanna show it to you. If you um let's see, what's the best way to find if you go to wolfmuller.co slash philosophy, you'll you'll find a, a list of these lectures that Dr. Schultz and I put together years ago uh there. And so I asked, I was talking to Dr. Schultz a long time and I said, could you, is there a list of 10 metaphors that would get someone kind of started on philosophy? And he says, yeah, I've got a list. And so we did 10 lectures on this Plato's cave and Augustine's pears and Aquinas's Phoenix and all this sort of stuff. Well, it's Aristotle's cross-examination of nature is the one that this is the four causes. This is where we got to go to understand this. So if you go to wolfmuller.co slash philosophy, you can find that and just click on it. And then this is what will come up. Uh, Aristotle's cross-examination of nature, the four causes. And and what you'll find there is a kind of an intro and then a long conversation you, you can listen to with Dr. Schultz and I. He's got some quotes from Aristotle to look at and then some notes that he has there. The main thing will be to listen to this Listen to this audio, but here's the basic idea, and then we'll look at the picture. The four causes that Aristotle asks to understand, you ask four questions to understand a thing. You say, out of what, uh, out of what has this thing come? That's the material cause. What type of thing is it? That's the formal cause. By means of what type of thing is it? That's the efficient cause. That's the from. And for the sake of what type of thing is it? That's the final cause. So where is it from? Where is it going? What is it made of? And what kind of thing is it? Or what's the, what's the, what's the mind of it? And here is the picture to kind of grab a hold of that. So you have a guy sculpting a statue there out of marble. So the material cause is the stone, the marble that's there. The efficient cause is the sculpture, the sculptor. The formal cause is the idea of a sculpture. And the final cause is to be a sculpture to be placed in the museum or whatever it's going to be. So, but this is the basic idea is that Luther is saying, well, how does how do we define marriage? Well, we look at the we say it's a man and a woman, but we don't know where it comes from. We don't know its purpose, where it's going. 
We don't know who creates it and we don't know why it's created. So we have to add to that definition of marriage, which is really quite nice. So, so back to Luther here. He says that the, that the final cause and the efficient cause are lacking. It's all, this only considers the material cause. So he wants to, so from whom and for what? So the following definition is truer and complete. Marriage is the lawful and divine union. So what is the efficient cause? God and his institution of marriage, which is uh, kind of held in the law. It's of one man and one woman. It's been ordained for the purpose, so this is the final cause, of one, calling upon God, two, the preservation and education of offspring, and three, for the administration of the church and the state. Now, this is a quite amazing thing. So that where does it come from? It comes from God and his word. What is it for? It's for prayer, preservation and education of children, and administration of church and state. So that Luther understands the, the family, and this is part of our understanding of the Western tradition, is the family is the bedrock of, of civilization, society, and so forth. Now, how phenomenal is this? Now, this is, um, to have this definition is to then exclude any sort of modern definitions of what marriage is as the kind of emotional intensification of or, or the public acknowledgement of the most emotionally intense relationship that two people have with one another or however many people have with one another all of these things are excluded okay now luther has a lot to say about marriage and i want to roll through this and make comment on it but if you guys are uh uh hanging out there i'd love to i'd love to get your responses and stuff like this um as we go, Jeanette says, today the understanding of marriage is the highest public expression of love for as long as it lasts, and it is fulfilling to me. Now, Luther is going to start with the assumption that marriage is suffering. And one of the very interesting things that I noted as I was looking through Luther's discussion here is how little he says about the joys of marriage. And I think that's because... Mm, well, there's probably a handful of reasons. Maybe I can't put my finger exactly on, on what it is. But, but Luther does not have the obsession that marriage is for me, that marriage fulfills me, or that marriage brings me happiness, but rather that to engage in marriage is an act of service. You're pouring your life out for another. Wives, be subject to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her so that there's um, service, suffering, even death involved in marriage. And Luther's going to contrast the, the act of marriage with the, with the selfish act of not being married. Well, let's, let's look at it here. Therefore, in the Christian doctrine, um, Oh, Erlen says, maybe you could say the main thing is not how you feel about it, but rather the vocation of marriage. Yeah, it's understanding of a calling of marriage. And it's and it's for something, this is always what, 
well, not the, but one of the main gifts that marriage gives is that it calls you out of yourself. You, you are not your own. Therefore, in the Christian doctrine, in which after the doctrine of the gospel and faith, we teach how we should conduct ourselves in a godly and honorable manner in this life, marriage is the first and chief thing, for it is the beginning and origin of the whole life. And Satan rages no less against this way of life than against the church. So the devil is always attacking uh, marriage. This, by the way, you, we should, I mean, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but you know, the Lutherans are always accused of this kind of antinomian spirit of, they never talk about how we should live and what we should do. It's just always about the forgiveness of sins. Well, look, we first, first we teach the doctrine uh, of faith in the gospel, and then we teach how we conduct ourselves in a godly and honorable manner. That's how this goes. Satan rages against it, uh, uh, no less than against the church. This is uh, to tell. This is always one of my um, uh, really important things to talk about with when couples are are getting married, and that is that marriage is spiritual warfare. That the devil attacks marriage, home, husband, wife, family, promises that we make, children, etc. This is apparent from the fact that a proper and salutary marriage and mutual love are very rare, not only among married people themselves, but also as far as the children and the neighbors are concerned. It's hard to find salutary marriage and mutual love, for it is hedged in by thorns and thistles. At the beginning, to be sure, this is not apparent to young people when, impelled by love and blind lust, they rush rashly into marriage. This is, well, you know how it goes. I'm just looking to see who's here in 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 bible classes this is when you get when you're getting married you think ah yeah everything's gonna be great how can we possibly have problems we see that other marriages and other couples have troubles but you know we got it sorted out it's like when i was a baby pastor and i confirmed my first confirmation class and all of them stayed in church for at least a year and i thought i now all these other pastors who lost all these confirmands they just didn't know what they were doing <laughs> that lasts for about a year. So, so you, so the say, so you, you're getting married and you have to say, oh, it'll be different. It'll be fine. But no, it's the reason is because, and Luther talks about this in other places, when you put two sinners so close to each other, they're going to sin against each other. That's part of the gift of marriage is that you, there's a, what, a, there's a, I don't, maybe vulnerability is not the right way to say it, but you, you, you can really hurt each other because you really love each other, etc. When they feel when this is the when the kids when they feel and experience troubles and difficulties of every kind, they repent too late and in vain. Therefore, Christ, therefore Christians should prepare themselves and so arrange their life that they do not consider marriage a rash or fortuitous matter, depending on. Uh, on our judgment and a fortuitous outcome, like you're just going to get lucky, but regarded as lawful and divine union. Clear proof of this is the fact that God created man and woman and that neither a man alone nor a woman alone is born, but that both man and wo woman are born. This is so out of date. Luther has no idea how many, that there's so many genders and that you can change from one to another. I can't even believe we're reading this. 
<laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Uh, in fact, we're going to come to that in a little bit because Luther has this prayer and he leans into this. Ah, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute. Therefore, the union has its origin in the first birth. And for this reason, it is truly lawful and divine. What, what is the first birth? Uh, is the is your natural birth. The second birth is your spiritual birth. Uh, but your first birth is your natural birth. And, and this is the thing when you're born is that the baby comes out and uh, and uh, and it's announced it's a boy or it's a girl. And that still happens. And so as long as that still happens, as long as the babies keep coming out as boys or girls, we know that the Lord, that's clear proof that the Lord has instituted the office of man and woman and therefore the office of marriage which results in more boys and girls furthermore god did not institute marriage for the sake of lust and the pleasures of the flesh this is not the final cause now this is the final cause for us today in our world the world says the final cause is pleasure that's what the whole thing is about this is so my particular thing that gives me pleasure everything has to be bent for that no it's not marriage is not for us but marriage in fact serves a twofold purpose one to be a remedy against lust that means a curb for our own lusts a, a godly way for the desires of the flesh to be expressed so Paul says it's better to marry than to burn, this kind of thing. So um, so we understand that. And then in the second place, and this is more important, to be a source and origin of the human race, babies, in order that offspring may be born and the human race may be propagated, or as the jurists say, to replenish the city. That is what a jurist would say. We need more citizens. <laughs> the babies are just citizens. <laughs> But from the Holy Scriptures, one should add the uh, one should add the purpose of bringing up children in the discipline and fear of the Lord, in order that they may be equipped to govern the church and the state. In other words, it's not just enough to have the babies; you have to bring them up. So Luther's definition includes not only giving birth to the children, but also raising them. And this is our understanding: is that where it's very, very obvious that you need a man and a woman to have a child. It is less obvious, but no less important that we confess that also for the raising of children, you need a man and a woman, a father and a mother. Okay. And for the purpose, the children, what's the, why do we raise children in discipline and fear the Lord so that they can be equipped to govern the church and the state so that, so that the, the, the family is now providing the, those who can serve in church preaching faithfully administering the sacraments so forth and the state fighting governing doing all the things that the state requires therefore the godly should be careful to maintain and observe this chief point that both sexes were created by god for lifelong inseparable union and companionship that is it is god's will and I do not know why God is capitalized there. But I, maybe Luther is just emphasizing it. 
I'm not sure. It is God's will by which he wants us men and women to be lawfully united in order that we may bring up offspring to serve the church and God. When we, uh, when we firmly retain this, we shall also more easily bear and overcome all the troubles and difficulties which married people are exposed in this unhappy life. Now, this is a very important thing to say when, when, when husband and wife look at each other, that if they just know, if they're just standing there and, and they say, let's see, here's a man. This is, you're not supposed to draw this picture anymore. And here's a woman. Right? These are the illegal pictures on the bathroom. So here, and they're just looking at each other. And, and she says, you're my husband. And he says, you're, you're my wife. That, and that's all they see about it. It's going to be very difficult for, to endure all of the troubles. So if things get hard, he can just say, well, I, you should be not my wife, or she should say, you should be not my husband. But when you see the, the efficient cause is God and his word, and that the purpose is not only children, but also the whole world. I mean, society and culture and, and everything else, when we see that this comes from God and is for the glory of God and the neighbor, then all of the stuff that comes up here has to be taken in a, the larger context. I think this is why I, the most important thing in marriage is the words of Jesus from Matthew 19, where he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So who is the one who united husband and wife in holy matrimony? It's not themselves. It's not their own efforts. It's not their own promises. It's not their own intention. It's not their own uh, resolve. It's not from them. This is from God. God joined them together. What God has joined together. Let no one separate. That's the, that's the key thing, so that they can look at one another and say, God has done it, and, he's, and he does all things well, and he's done this thing, and he's done this for this purpose, so that when we know the efficient cause and we know the final cause, when we know the from, let's let, maybe just say it that way. When we know the from, wow. It keeps changing. And when we know the four, then all the difficulties in between, uh, again, can be put in context. Hmm. Okay. Now, uh, we got a question that says, what about a marriage at a courthouse? We want to recognize that the lawfulness that Luther is talking about, the lawfulness has to do with God's instituted law and that he's put that in place so that we still recognize marriage as a civil estate, although that is getting to, unfortunately, to be a complicated question. In other words, as the, as the state continues to muddle the definition of marriage, what does it matter? We still got to keep fighting for marriage to be um, 
ordered properly in the civil estate, but at some point it might not be. And it'll be then just for Christians to recognize marriage. But So we got to bear and overcome the troubles and difficulties which married people are exposed in this unhappy life because the world, the flesh, and the devil fights against everything good. And so marriage is fought against. But if we have this bigger context, it makes that uh, more easy to bear. For ever since man was subjected to death and Satan through original sin, Satan does not cease to vex and afflict married people horribly, both in body and in soul. <laughs> Do you think this will be the the quote that I can give at the next marriage sermon? <laughs> but it's true, right? It's true. Uh, this is what mars this kind of life so much and makes it so troublesome, odious, and hateful that nature shrinks from marriage in no other way than it shrinks from the cross, as examples and the exceedingly foul words of the heathen testify. The the old pagans um, were the old paganism hates marriage, and the more pagan our culture becomes, the more it hates marriage. So you have all this language, you know, you have this like what's this old typical thing of the guys at the bar and the guy says, "I got to go back to the old ball and chain." That just kind of baseline despising of marriage is part of the pagan mind and uh there's a socrates quote coming up that kind of exemplifies it today you could hear many who studiously assemble all the disadvantages and all the difficulties by which they allow themselves to be alienated from the thought of marriage this is happening more and more now that people don't want to be married because they see all the difficulties of marriage uh, especially, for example, if you have someone who's grown up in uh, in a home where there was divorce or someone who uh, grew up in a violent home or some of the comments have come in just to me. I'm looking here about people who have been in horrible marriages where one person has abused the other. And this is not far from any of our experiences. Uh, um, that we've seen miserable marriages and then the kids say, well, I don't want that. And they think that that, that, that horribleness, that that is marriage. And, and you can assemble all the reasons against it. This is happening more and more so that people are getting married less and less and later and later in life. Uh, there was, I was over in, where was I in Gothenburg in Sweden at the, at the, uh, this is right before COVID. So this is 2019 at the Corpus Christi thing. And they were telling me that the average age of a man getting married in Sweden is like 37, 37. Yui. And, uh, and that, and that, ex, that waiting and some, and then not getting married. This is one of these things is that there's an, a, there's a disillusionment about marriage that we have. Well, that same disillusionment about marriage existed all throughout the Middle Ages, and we have to fight against it. It's not enough to, to, to come up with a list of all the bad things about marriage. This is what Luther is saying here. No, you, 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 we have to say, well, who made it and what's it for? And we recognize the goodness there. Um, nor do we think, okay, so, uh, so we have to, and, and remember, oh, yeah, and this is important. Remember who Luther's talking to. 
he's talking to these seminarians who are getting ready to be pastors, and he's urging them not to shrink back from this vocation of marriage. Now, he also says, nor do we think men should be forced into marriage reluctantly and against their will. For if you have the gift of being able to abstain from it and to avoid it without sin, abstain from it by all means, if you can do so without sin. This is the gift of chastity, which is understood in the history of the church to be a supernatural gift given to very few. But Jesus says, some are, some are made eunuchs for, for princes, for queens and for the kingdom of men. Some are made eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Uh, not all can receive this. So uh, there's a few people who can uh, live life without the burden of uh, sinful lust. And Luther says, okay, that's good. But if you cannot avoid being joined to a woman without sinning, use the remedy shown by God. This is the first Corinthians better to be married than to burn. And if you do not seek the function of bringing children into being, at least seek the remedy against sin in order that fornication and adultery may be avoided as well as pollutions and promiscuous lusts. So this is an interesting thing that, that Luther says this is, and I think this is understood as a concession here is that marriage is understood as the only outlet for any intimate activity. And even if you're not trying to have children, you should be married. Now, I don't want to make too much of that because not seeking the function of bringing children into being, uh, we've made a whole industry out of that. And the technology for that didn't exist in Luther's day. So I, I, I don't want to go too far into the ethics of what Luther's saying there, because I think his idea is, look, if you're just not, not even if you're not trying to be a father, you should be married. For there is more than enough misery in the fact that we are oppressed by misfortunes of every kind, by sin and death. Do not heap sin on sin and load yourself with an evil conscience by committing other misdeeds. Yet, they say, marriage is a way of life too wretched and too troublesome, I reply. It is a twofold way of life, a life of sin and a life of punishment. Now consider which is better, to live in punishment without sin, or on the other hand, sin without punishment. Now what Luther's getting out here is that he, he is ba he's basically arguing, and I think he's probably arguing against things that he's heard these seminarians talk about. Marriage is too hard. It's too much trouble. I, I, I can't imagine being a father and a husband. And, and Luther says, okay, fair enough. It's hard, but you have two choices. You have the hard, holy life, or you have the easy, sinful life. Do you want the punishments or do you want the sin? Reason is so corrupt that it cannot bear those punishments for sin with equanimity. Therefore, it seeks the things that are agreeable, joyful, and pleasant. It flees cross and trouble. So when Socrates was asked whether it was better to marry or not to marry, he says, whatever you do, you'll regret it. <laughs> See, that's the pagan idea. It's pagan, not Christian. If you marry, an, this is Socrates. If you marry an ugly woman, you will have punishment. If you marry a woman who is beautiful, you will have her in common. In other words, someone else will come and steal her from you. Uh, apparently, Socrates had a not pretty wife. He looked only at the punishment and the misuse. But a Christian should resolve as follows. The punishment must be despised and every annoyance must be removed from one's eyes. One must venture in the name of the Lord. 
One must think of a life without sins, without uncleanness, without defilement and stains, in order that you may be able to have a good conscience before God. For one should not hope for kingdom, blessedness, or eternal life in this life. So what, what, what are you expecting? We live according to the Lord's word. Original sin, the weakness of the flesh, the devil don't allow it. If wretchedness must be born, we bear it with God rather than with the devil. Although those who flee the burdens of marriage live a pleasant and agreeable life, have their harlots, whom they sometimes cast aside and sometimes receive as they please, what kind of conscience are we to think that such men have? Surely a very evil one. And what is most serious by far, they also endure the same annoyances. Indeed, they endure them more of them. They're plagued more cruelly by harlots than they would be by their wives. Therefore, they bear a twofold punishment. They bear one that is in common, and to it they add a punishment that is eternal. So that's a, that is a, uh, Luther's saying, look, you, you guys are going to try to make it easy by not being married. You're going to get double trouble. And in fact, Luther himself was, there was a campaign in Wittenberg that Luther was leading. I got to go back and get the details against, against the brothels, which were always very common in the medieval world, close by the monasteries. Okay, there's a lot happening in the chat here. Let me just go back and see what's going on. Uh, let's see, Marsha, our daughter. Oh, let's see. Um, Sarah says, what if you can't produce children? It's still really difficult. What do you suggest husband and wife do if they can't have children and they struggle? This is a cross. So we... Uh, there's a, this is a hard, this is hard. Uh, so let me give some parameters in which we think about it because when two Christians are rightly pursuing the gifts of God, for example, man and woman married, pursuing children, uh, and they can't get there. And then what happens is you see everyone around you getting pregnant who doesn't even want to get pregnant throwing away children murdering them even not with without a second thought and here you are uh pursuing god and things seem to be going wrong and it just is so painful right but that pain is in if we remember that mourning is the shape of love uh, when the object of our love is missing. So mourning is the shape of love, the shape love takes when the object of our love is missing. Then when husband and wife are unable to have children, they're mourning. They're loving what is missed, a, a child in life. And that that is a good uh and godly thing to do so a husband and wife who can't have kids are mourning and that mourning is in fact a way of extolling the gift so there's an old line in um in cicero where where he says the abuse does not destroy but confirms the substance that seems philosophical but Luther brings it up in this kind of context, and he says that 
when someone abuses baptism by false teaching, it doesn't destroy baptism, but in fact, it confirms the, the reality of baptism. Same thing with marriage. When people are fighting against the gift of marriage and abusing marriage, for example, by pretending that two men can be married or that marriage can be ended at any time or whatever sort of mockery we have of marriage nowadays, that that doesn't destroy marriage, but it actually confirms the substance. And the same thing is true here when, when something happens in such a way that uh, husband and wife can't conceive and can't have children. It doesn't destroy parenthood. It, in fact, confirms it. Your, your mourning and your sadness um, confirm the fact that, the, that you entered into the office of parent and that, it's, and that the Lord simply hasn't granted it. Instead, you have this, the, uh, this cross to bear. We see what a heavy cross it is, especially in the Old Testament, where Hannah, for example, is praying so fervently that the Lord would give her a child, or Elizabeth, or even Sarah for so long. And so uh, it, when her and Isaac are, sorry, when her and Abraham are so old, and so we see that what a cross it is to bear. One of the temptations that couples often will fall into is that they'll seek remedy in technology, especially through like in vitro fertilization or surrogacy or something like this. Um, I would caution against all of that, uh, maybe almost all of that, but I would, I would at least caution uh, to involve technology to try to overcome something. If there's, you know, if there's um, procedures that can be done to to remedy the infertility of the husband or the wife, then those are good. But the the technology to help with conception, I, I would be wary of that. And then um, I would uh, I would pursue, I think, the good of adoption. This is one of the ways that we can bless and serve our neighbor. When there are children who are unable to be cared for by parents, then parents who can't have children, they can step in and serve them in that way. Uh, my, my uncle just died a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he and my aunt had two children, uh, that were, that died very young and a genetic thing that they couldn't, they couldn't have healthy children. So they adopted. So my cousins who were adopted were there at the funeral and what a gift that family was to them to sort of see that. So I think that's the, I think that's the way to look in hope for that. So. Um, yeah, let's see. So what Luther's saying is, though, uh, Erlen says, those of us who are in our forties and fifties should still seek to find a spouse, a spouse, even though there's now natural, no natural hope for having children. I think that's right. That's right. And it's just like this, you know, husband and wife are still husband and wife, even if they are unable to have children, or even if the time for having children has passed or whatever, they're still husband and wife there. So, um, that's, I think that's right. Jane says, ugly as in an unbeliever. I know Socrates' wife was an unbeliever, but I also think that that meant that she was just not very attractive. Uh, that's a, that's a thing. Um, someone's asking, Gally is asking, interesting to say that is because conception happens outside the body of the mother. There, in in regards to the cons the mm, 
there are just ethical and moral um, problems introduced into marriage whenever the act of conception is disconnected from the natural act. Um, and so, so it brings in a lot of, it brings in a lot of questions. Uh, for example, if you have donor donors who are involved, or if you have surrogacy involved, or with a lot of the in vitro stuff, the biggest thing is that you have, for example, multiple embryos that are created and then frozen. Um, and, and, and that is a, I mean, we understand that if there's a, if there's a sperm and an egg joined together in conception, that that's a person. And so a lot of times the process will involve fertilization of multiple eggs. There's some places that'll just do one. And it's like a, it's a, they're like, it's like a pro-life in vitro kind of thing. Um, but it, but there's, there's so many ethical issues that are introduced into the technology via the technology that it's, um, it's, I think, especially since adoption is there, uh, it, this is one of the things where we have to bear our cross and trust in the Lord. So good. Um, Okay, let's put a bow on it, and then it looks like there's a lot to talk about. So uh, let's uh, let's put a bow on Luther here, and we'll take it up again next week. I, I think it will be great. Um, the hearts of godly men, and remember again, I would just remind you, it's also godly women, but we're talking about um, we're we're here talking about seminarians. So that's who Luther's talking about. The hearts of godly men should be buoyed up and exhorted to despise the annoyances of marriage. And, and this is, that sounds funny, but Luther says, look, there's annoyances of marriage. So what? I don't care about the annoyances of marriage. I'm not going to avoid this because it's hard. I'm not going to try to, you know, uh, uh, pursue easy, the easy life and pleasures. I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not worried about the annoyances for a husband should behave as a man, not only at night, but also at other times, enduring the punishments and the will of God in bearing and swallowing the impudence of the household, the wrongs of the neighbors, whatever troubles occur. So bearing and swallowing, so that, so that the Lord dishes out something, uh, you know, he puts the broccoli on the plate and you eat it. That's what, a, this is Luther preaching to these seminarians. This is, look, it's going to, there's going to be hard times. Endure it. You're going to have bad neighbors. Suck it up. Uh, the best men and the best women should be chosen for marriage. So this is there. Uh, I think this is probably a good spot to stop because I think that there's a, I'm seeing some more in the chat too. So, so I will, we'll put a bow on it here and take it up next time. It's good to see you all, by the way. And if you're watching a recording of this, you can join us live. Uh, Wolfmuller.co slash Bible has the link for uh, where to join us there. Let's uh, close with a prayer. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks for your gift of marriage. We pray that you would help us to extol it, to rejoice in it, and to delight in it, especially in the confusion that exists in our own day. We pray that we would see clearly that you have instituted marriage for man and woman, for a lifelong companionship, for prayer, for raising children,
for serving the state and the church. We pray that you would bless our uh, lives in this calling and vocation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.